Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Dom. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Great to have you. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Could you give us a brief introduction to who you are? Sure. Don Gossin. I am the CEO and co-founder of Nevermind. I am a Canadian transplant in Portugal. Interesting fact about myself. I've actually lived outside of Canada for longer than I've lived in Canada at this point. So Canadian in name only. <laughs> yeah, I looked at your bio and it says you've been like, lived in like, what, seven or eight countries or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically all the continents bar Af- Africa. Yeah, everything except for Africa and Antarctica at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I grew up moving all over the world and then have continued the trend into adulthood. Yeah, sounds like a dream life, to be honest. Very envious of you. <laughs> it's not too bad. Can't complain. And it seems like, you know, Nevermind is not the first business you've started up as well. You've been a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Is that right? Yeah. So entered the entrepreneurial fray in 2017, started a project then, and then have subsequently done three other companies, including Nevermind, all three, which are still running. But uh, my core focus in day to day is, is now on Nevermind. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Well, what I want to do is I want to run it back so I can get to understand you a little bit more on why you are the way you are and why, the way you think and what you've done with your life so far. So was you born in Canada? I was born in Canada. And then when I was little, we moved to Australia and spent some time there and then moved back to Canada. And then we moved to South America to Venezuela, spent some time there. And then I went back that I finished high school in Venezuela and then I went back to Canada to go to university and I studied engineering and then I went into commodities trading in risk and did that for a period of time it was a bit boring though so I left that world moved to the west coast of the US at Los Angeles and started working in the IT consulting space. So sort of parlayed my skill set from the credit risk side of things, uh, you know, focused on like the analytics side and became a subject matter expert in data and analytics. And then after that, moved all over the world, building data states for some of the biggest companies on the planet, um, companies like HSBC, L'Oreal, Sharp, AXA, et cetera, et cetera. So I got a very broad set of exposures to building out complex data ecosystems across a number of different verticals and industries. And interestingly enough, like every client will tell you that they're different, but the actual, you know, fact of the matter is they're not so different. Mm -hmm. And 
I did that for the better part of 15 years. I was always trying to answer the same four questions, basically, regardless of the client. Where's the data coming from? Where's it going? Who's using it? And what are they using it for? They're quite simple questions, but they have very complicated answers. And that's largely because the existing like, contemporary solutions that are in place are not really set up to answer those questions. So that's kind of where my passion lies, trying to solve those four questions. And that's what's led me to where I am today. Brilliant. So take me back to your childhood then. What was your earliest memory? My earliest memory? I mean, it's definitely the time we spent in Australia. I mean, one of my uh, earliest memories would probably be playing ninjas with my older brother running around the neighborhood in Perth. That's where we lived. So yeah, that would be, those would be probably my, my earliest memories. I would have been about, I don't know, three or four back then. Why do you think that particular memory stands, stands out to you as the earliest one? I don't know. I don't know if there's any particular rationale for why that stands out. I think obviously it's a, a formative period in anybody's life. And that's when you start to realize what's going on around you. You become conscious of the external world and who sort of uh, is part of your inner circle. And that's mm. broadly speaking familial at, at that point. So I, you know, it's, it's the triggers for that are probably something like relationship building, right? And establishing the relationships with someone other than just your parents, which would be your siblings at that point. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say life was like for you growing up? Yeah, it was great. I mean, uh, I think I had an unorthodox upbringing. I've still got friends from all over the world, and most of them grew up and stayed where they were born and raised, whereas I moved around all over. I think it's definitely given me a different set of skills in comparison to most other people. So I don't find it very difficult to acclimatize to new environments. I enjoy the challenge of, uh, I don't know if assimilating is the right word because I don't know if I necessarily assimilate, but I think I enjoy the challenge of integrating myself into new cultures and environments and experiences. I enjoy that challenge. I think it also has had an effect on myself from a career point of view. I don't like things to be static for a long time. I think it makes me a bit uncomfortable. So I like that. I like the challenge and, and moving around provides that type of challenge. I think it's also influenced the career that I've chosen. I, you know, I, I studied uh, computer and electrical engineering at school. Actually, that was probably the best advice I got from my dad was uh, I had the choice, right? In, in Canada, when you're going to university, you do your first year sort of common. And then at the end of that first year, you pick which discipline you want to go into. And so I was either going to go into chemical engineering or into computer and electrical. And my dad was like, don't go into oil and gas because that's what you know he did and his dad did. And so I think for him, the writing was kind of on the wall. And I'm glad he gave me that advice. Either of those two career paths would have afforded me the privilege and luxury of moving around all over. But with the computer side of things, I control that as opposed to 
if I was in the oil and gas business. I wouldn't have that privilege. I would be forced to move to certain places. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, going back to your question, my upbringing gave me a certain perspective on the world and handed me, I think, a, a set of skills and tools that I can leverage that allow me to do what I like to do, which is um, move around and experience new new environments, new challenges, et cetera. You mentioned your dad. What kind of influence did your dad have on you growing up? Yeah, I think definitely like uh, tour de force, very driven. So having that perspective on how to operate, you know, I, my dad's been quite successful in his own right and it, it, it wasn't, necessarily like the the outcomes of that but seeing the work that goes in to achieve those successes you know i i think that's it gave me sort of a a grounded perspective in terms of what needs to be done in order to be successful i do also i think i recognize the fact that he made sacrifices he made some choices and i think the reflection there was that if i wanted to um be entrepreneurial, I needed to make certain different choices. My dad was like an executive for his career. And so he worked for large organizations. And I kind of realized, especially when I was doing like the credit risk stuff that I didn't mind working in those environments, but I didn't like, it wasn't uh, working for those types of large organizations wasn't really my cup of tea. So having the perspective of like, okay, if there is an element, there is a world out there um, from an entrepreneurial point of view that will take some risk or an appetite for risk that um, I think I needed to, you know, put on myself and make that leap. How was uh, the older years of your, let's say your teenage years growing into earlier adolescence schooling? What was life like? With your schooling there of course as you said you finished off in venezuela and then you went back to canada to university tell me about that what was what was it like then i mean it was interesting it gave me a perspective on the world that i i hadn't been afforded to me prior to that because um at that point in time um you know i i think now venezuela is in a worse situation than it was at the end of the time that i was there chavez got elected so prior to that it wasn't in as bad a state it's a very beautiful country incredible natural resources i think what what it gave me an appreciation of is that like there's a world outside of our experience you know the yeah the quote-unquote western uh european north american experience um you know, there's there's levels of poverty around the world that we're not necessarily exposed to on a day to day basis. I know there are levels of that type of poverty in each of our homelands, but it's not as pervasive. So that type of experience, it gave me a different perspective. And I think it, it what it does is, especially at that age, it, it gives you a different orientation. Right. And appreciation for the differences in culture, et cetera. So, I, you know, 
I think back then it was harder for me to assimilate and there was more culture shock and that sort of thing. Um, also because you're young and, you know, um, your life is changing personally a lot at that stage. And then you're going through these like external pressures and influences and, and experiences too, right? But what it taught me at least was like, coping mechanisms and again, how to actually orient myself so that I didn't feel necessarily out of place, right? And that I could handle the different challenges thrown at me. Can you think of a pivotal moment in your life where it changed everything? Well, I will say that the comment on which avenue I chose from an educational point of view was pretty pivotal. Like I said, if, if I picked chemical engineering over a computer, there's a high likelihood I'd be talking to you right now from Calgary or Houston, Dubai. Yeah, very true. None of those places I would like to live, but that would kind of be what would be forced on me. So that's probably the most singular critical decision I've ever made is choosing computer engineering over yeah. chemical. Yeah, it would have literally been a totally different life, wouldn't it? Yeah, really? yeah. I think so. All right. So what was your first ever job? And so I worked a paper route with my brother when we were little. So that would have been my first ever job. I wasn't so great at waking up early in the morning to go hawk, <laughs> uh, you know, go, go throw the, the papers around. Um, so what I got tasked with was uh, collecting the money, <laughs> which I guess, you know, was an early experience on how to deal with people and try and squeeze cash out of them. Hmm. But yeah, so that was my, that would have been my first job other than, you know, the stuff we had to do around the house. Yeah, that was my first job as well, actually. Uh, I was going to ask you, what did it teach you? But you said, as you said, it learned, taught you how to deal with people and get money out of them. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great first job. I, I don't know what age you started that, but I was 13 when I started that job. I think I was like eight when I started. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Only because, yeah, you know, I, I got looped in by my brother. It wasn't really like a choice. It was like, all right, you're going to help me do this. Okay, I suppose so. Yeah. I put that down to me being an early morning person to this very day. Like, I wake up so early, like five and six every morning. And that was because I did that paper round. We call it paper round here. And it was every single day of the year, apart from Christmas Day, mm -hmm. literally. Yeah, so yeah just... it was the same. I can't say I'm an early bird. I'm more of a night owl. So yeah, that's why I think I was on collections versus uh, getting up early to put the papers in the satchel and then ride around the neighborhood. Okay, so, all right, walk me through your career then before you founded Nevermind, because obviously this isn't your first company, is it? No. Yeah, so after university, like I mentioned, I went into, I went to work for an energy company that did commodities trading. So they traded in electricity and natural gas specifically. And there I was on the risk team. So we analyzed basically the credit risk of our customers. So we would take in third party information from like Experian and TransUnion, Moody's, get the corporate credit scoring of our customers. And then we would use our historical information to create our own internal credit risk model for any given customer. 
And that way we could um, we could basically provide credit for hedging and that sort of thing to our customers. So that's where I cut my teeth on the analytics side. I had an affinity towards it. Like I want, I knew I wanted to go into that side of business when I came out of school because I liked set theory and database management and stuff like that. And then, but the commodities trading is a bit boring. It's not very fast paced. So then I got the opportunity kind of randomly to go work for this small mid-sized consulting firm in Los Angeles. And there, most of the exposure that I had was to the healthcare sector. So spent a lot of time working in that space. And then that company got bought by NTT Data, which is the Japanese equivalent to IBM. And they shipped me to Tokyo on secondment for a year. One of the groups there was doing a big digital transformation for Sharp, and they brought me in to lead the analytics piece of that. I was supposed to be there for a year and ended up there for four and a half. Met my wife there. And then... Tokyo. Yep. And then towards the end of that, I was basically traveling between Tokyo and London. And I was going to London at least like once a week every month. Um, So towards the end of my stint in Tokyo, I decided, look, if I'm going to spend so much time in London, I might as well be in London if that's where this business is is heading. So then, yeah, I they moved me to London and I headed up their big data and analytics practice. And uh, it was during that time, it was in 2016, our financial services group ran a blockchain conference. And my future co-founder and business partner, Dimitri Dion, he gave a talk at that conference talking about using blockchains for providential integrity. So it was at that point I was like, oh, okay, this is an interesting application for this technology that I was familiar with, but hadn't really looked into. And so I started to collaborate with him and with his business partners at the time. And one thing led to another, and we ended up co-founding a project in the Web3 space called Ocean Protocol which was a, a data marketplace. So we launched that in late 2017, um, and I moved from London to Berlin, because um, that's where everybody, all the co-founders were. And yeah, then I actually uh, poached one of my guys from NTT Data, ITOR, who ended up becoming future co-founder and, and uh, business partner on these, the other ventures. So he came over to be our VP of engineering and yeah, me, Demi and Itor and Bruce and Trent who built up the solution, launched it in the spring of 2019. And then in the fall of 2019, Demi and Itor and myself decided, you know, we wanted to create another company. So we established a company in Switzerland called Kiko and from there, we ended up building a bunch of different networks. We helped build Celo. We helped build Filecoin. So uh, like Phil Plus, it's the most used app for Filecoin. And we architected and built that um, and still operate mm-hmm. it at Kiko. And yeah, we've had our hands in a, in a bunch of different networks and protocols and et cetera. And while we were at Kiko, we started to incubate Nevermind. So from 2017 to uh, March of last year, 
we incubated Nevermind. And in March of, of 2022, we got some funding in the door uh, for Nevermind, spun it out. And, you know, I, I exited, actually, I tore myself and Dimmy exited Kiko. We left it in the hands of uh, an old colleague of Itor of mine from our HSBC days in London. And um, yeah, we've, the three of us have been working on Nevermind ever since. And yeah, it's been great. So three businesses there, and obviously Nevermind being the, the latest one. Starting a business is obviously a huge risk. You don't know if it's going to work. What is it about starting a business for you that is more favorable than let's just say going and getting employed by a company i think it's the control and not so much like um the corporate control but the control over the solution so i I brought up those four questions before and one of the challenges in like an enterprise environment is the constraints that come with existing technology that are already there so you have this problem called change management right and while me on the technology side might be advocating for the perfect solution, there's a whole smorgasbord of reasons why that solution doesn't get adopted. And one of those, you know, one of the main ones is, is change, engineering change management, right? That's not a part of our existing stack. Therefore, we don't have any people that understand or can support it. Therefore, it adds too much risk. Therefore, we will not select this solution. So you end up being, there's like this encumbrance, there's a a mandate to use existing technology. And what ends up happening, especially with relationship to answering those four questions, where's your data coming from? Where's it going? Who's using it? What are they doing with it? You just build like these duct tape solutions together to answer those questions and they don't scale. And they don't scale, they definitely don't scale out outside that singular organization. That's one of the primary drivers is just having the ability to control what we're using in an offering to take to those organizations to try and win, you know, their hearts and minds. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because myself as a recruitment business, of course, we're talking to candidates all the time and often one of the reasons why they want to leave a big corporate company is because of the legacy code is because of the bureaucracy and the red tape and uh, you know whilst they might not want to start their own company working in a startup which is my focus it's just much more favorable because there is that you know no two days are the same one day the the project we can change around chop and change but you're always experimenting to get the best solution and uh, i see in the founders themselves they're they have that open door policy with their team as well because they know that you know we don't have the blueprint yet and it's enjoyable for everyone i think most challenging definitely yeah i mean in an enterprise setting there can be a lot of variety and there they can be i mean look they're most organizations under the hood are also chaotic. But I think what changes in a startup setting is the sense of achievement, right? Yes. Because it's chaotic. There's a lot of variety and variation, but the teams are small enough. And, you know, usually the momentum is in such a way that you can kind of see the fruits of your labor. Whereas in a larger context, in a larger setting, those fruits might get lost within all of the machinery that's there, right? 
or it just doesn't get adopted at all, which is like the most, I think, discomforting situation where you work on something and then it just doesn't go anywhere. But that's the same for startups too. I mean, there are, we've worked on stuff that like you think is going to be really promising and then it doesn't go anywhere, right? So there are equal amounts of frustrations. I think the other part of the entrepreneurial environment is the highs are higher and the lows are lower, right? So you're not going to find a lot of people in this on the entrepreneurial side and even in the startup space that are quite even keeled and need that sort of very static or almost flat trajectory, right? People are going to, they're going to gravitate towards it because it's new and exciting technology or because they like the thrill of the ride. Absolutely. And even if I'm looking at your profile on LinkedIn, it looks great that you've got these companies and the ones before. But of course, just looking at it on the screen, it's not all plain sailing, is it? I'm, I'm quite curious if you could put a number on it. How many times do you think you've failed along the way before you got it right? And we fail all the time. I mean, you're kind of failing forward, right? Yeah. It's all trial and error. But I, honestly, it was, I think my entire career has just been trial and error, you know? What you hope for is when you are successful, those successes make a step change forward, right? Part of what I used to do in the past, which doesn't, I mean, it still plays a role now, but like my affinity towards travel allowed me to make step changes forward because I was someone that was willing to take the risk, not just on like the work, the pure work side of things, but also on where I was doing the work. And that affords you the ability to maybe do the same thing, but in a completely different environment that hasn't seen that type of implementation or whatever before. And you can use that to sort of advance both the state of the art as well as your career forward. So that's that's one thing. But then, uh, yeah, from an entrepreneurial point of view, it's about kind of, um, I don't know, establishing the small wins in aggregate help lead up to a big win, I think. And then how compelling you can make that is, uh, I think, a measure of how successful you will be. And that's, from my point of view, a lot of that is measured in, in business development and sales, right? You can build great technology, but if nobody uses it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So how big are both your companies, never mind a Kiko? So... In total, about 40 people across the two. So, I don't know, 25 or 30 at Kiko and 10 at Nevermind. And uh, you mentioned there's a couple of founders as well that you're partners. Collectively, what do you think it is that you, you have and your team that has allowed you to be successful? What key qualities do you share? So, Demi is like the creative genius. He sees things from... A technology and application point of view that front runs everybody else. ITOR is able to make sense of that chaos and actually put it in practice. So ITOR is just, he's a genius architect and engineer. And then me, I have the ability to kind of synthesize that chaos and wrap it in a functional organization. So I think the three of us together have a pretty unique proposition. Usually organizations have 
two of the three, but they don't have all three. Our success is indicative of that ability, not just to come up with good ideas and build them, but also to execute on the whole thing. How important would you, would you say it has been having two other co-founders working in harmony with you? Oh, I mean, it's, I think it's critical. They do stuff that I can't do, right? I can't predict the future the way Demi predicts it, and I can't write code and, and you know, architect solutions the way iTor does. Those guys, they can't run the business and handle the legals and uh, synthesize the technology and the business together the way that I do. So each of us kind of complements the other very well, in my opinion. It's also kind of indicative of the fact that we've been working together. I mean, Itor and I have been working together for going on eight years, Mm -hmm. and I've been working with Demi for six Seven, if you include like the advisory stuff when I was in London and he was in Berlin. So we're coming up to a decade of working together. So I think that indicates kind of the fact that we, the three of us complement each other quite well. Yeah, it's enough time to know you definitely work well. (laughs) Okay, so what has been the hardest thing about growing a startup? I think the hardest part is getting the message across. Like operating the business, putting it together, coming up with ideas and executing on that stuff isn't that difficult, or at least an hour with our trifecta, it's not that hard. But I think what we do somewhat poorly is like, we're not great at, at um, amplifying our message and our narrative. At the end of the day, I'm an engineer, Dimmy's an engineer, I tour's an engineer. So we kind of get stuck in the weeds of uh, of the product and the engineering, the technicalities of the solution, et cetera, and um, focus probably too much on that. And so the the hardest part for us is probably that promotion, narrative building, marketing side of things. I would anticipate, and based on my experience, I think this is also probably the hardest problem for most tech startups. But yeah, that's that's the hardest is, you know, we know we've got a strong product and when we relay it to people, you can see the light go off and people are like, this is amazing. Our natural reaction or our natural position is to focus more on building as opposed to not even selling, just amplifying. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about Nevermind then. What, what's going on right now? Tell me about some of the ambitions of the business. Sure. So, I mean, the, the proposition this is, a, is a bit of a passion project for myself, right? It is. I'm, we're trying to answer these four questions. And so, what we've been focused on for going on uh, two thirds of a decade is really leveraging technology in order to establish um, proper provenance and correspondingly fine-grain attribution to the usage of assets like data sets, models, algorithms, and the services that are created And you know, when you combine all of those components together. So we've been building out this technology and what we've landed on is this ability to register and publish the existence of an asset in a decentralized context so that it can be discoverable 
by virtually anyone, depending on the use case. And then leveraging, in particular, Web3 blockchain technology to digitize the act of, of procurement and acquisition. So orchestrating the access to those underlying assets. And then in addition to that, providing the ability to then, in the case of data, compute on that data. So myself and ITOR, we come out of the big data space. Dimi comes out of the Web3 space. ITOR and I, you know, we cut our teeth coming up through industry, deploying big data lakes, et cetera. And one of the things that we realize is the consolidation model, which is the contemporary architecture for data management, basically suck up as much information as you possibly can into a, a single repository. It starts to break at a certain point, and it's usually for two reasons. One is that there's a data gravity problem, right? So if you want to share information, the contemporary model would require you to move that data around, but the data is too big, right? We're talking like mm-hmm. terabytes, petabytes, you know, massive amounts of information, and it just becomes too big to move over the wire. And then the other issue from a data sharing context point of view is the honeypot effect. So Jordan, you have a data set and I have a data set in a contemporary context. I'd either have to give my data to you or you'd have to give your data to me or the two of us would have to trust some third party and put our data there and then we can start to analyze it, right? The problem with that is when we start to commingle these data sets, we create a honeypot. And if that gets hacked, both of us are exposed. And if it's with a third party, they're also exposed. So it becomes this huge reputational risk. And so companies will push back on any sort of data sharing, collaborative types of initiatives based on primarily those two constraints. So when we started doing all of this, you know, we, we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, how do we how do we solve for this consolidation problem? And the response is to go federated. And so now this concept emerges of not moving the data to the computation, but moving the computation to the data. We call that data in situ computation because it's got a cool acronym, DISC. Other organizations like Filecoin in the Web3 space call it compute over data. But the concept is still the same. You're moving the computation to the data as opposed to the other way around. So with Nevermind, we facilitate that application. And from our point of view, we do all of this uh, to enable the analytics side of things. So in our case, specifically when it comes to federated analytics, we're focused on the machine learning application in a federated fashion, which is called federated learning. And now with the emergence of AI, which everybody is familiar with, I think, opportunities begin to arise to take advantage of these new advanced capabilities on the artificial intelligence side of things with these federated capabilities in terms of computation. So the example that I like to give is, um, Jordan, you've got you know, your OpenAI subscription to ChatGPT, right? And let's say you've got um, access to the plugins in ChatGPT. So you create a holiday maker AI agent for yourself, right? What does that require? Okay, well, it requires this, this subscription that you've got to OpenAI for ChatGPT. 
and it requires plug-in services from, let's say, Expedia, OpenTable, TripAdvisor, Hotels.com, Google Search, right? What you can do is provide your context. You want to go on a holiday somewhere, right? You're a young guy. You probably want to go to the beach somewhere, party, um, go to some nice restaurants, some hot spots, etc. You want to go during, you know, the summer months, um, and you want to spend X. So that's your context, right? You provide that context to this service, you've, and you've lined up the third-party services. If you have an orchestrator behind the scenes, like uh, an auto GPT or something, that agent could book your entire holiday, right? So you've created this encapsulated AI agent service. Now, you tell me about that. And I say, oh, Jordan, this is great. I want access to it. The only way for me to actually access that solution, your service would right now, would be for me to get access. You give me your username and password to OpenAI, and I provide my context via your subscription. What we've done is enabled you to actually wrap your agent, which is represented by your API, in an NFT, and you can set access parameters, like time-based parameters, to that NFT. So you can restrict access, let's say, for one month to that API, and then you can set, you can also set a price for that access. So say you set the price to access that API via that NFT to 20 bucks. Now you can sell me that NFT, and I can gain access to your ChatGPT API. I can provide my context to your API, and I can take advantage of your service. So in this context, you know, I've got kids. We want to go, I don't know, let's say we want to go back to Canada, right? I go to some restaurants. We got to be eating by, you know, 6 p.m. We got to eat spaghetti every night. Otherwise, my kids lose their mind. So that's the context that I provide, but I do it through your API and you control my access to your API through this NFT. And so now what we have in addition to enabling this value creation for you, which currently doesn't exist. The only organizations really that are monetizing these AI services are the model providers, right? OpenAI, Stability AI, MidJourney, people that are developing on top, they can embed these services into their own product or their own website, but these products don't take a lot to build. So does it merit setting up all of this infrastructure around it? Arguably not. In this case, you've got a very simple means of value capture through this NFT. You can avail these services to external counterparties and you can control that access. What we're doing on the back end is registering these different contexts. So like my data set, the context that I pass to your service, never mind registers that, but associates it to me, right? And then when I pass that information through to your model, we perform an activity. It's a traditional ML process called transfer learning. But basically, it gives us the ability to track and trace from point of publishing the context information through the model inference where the information is coming from to create that inference, right? Because we're limiting the source 
context that the model's using for the output, we know it's coming from me, right? So now, in addition to uh, the value capture that you get and the value capture that I get from the service, I can also understand the response. I get transparency on where that information is coming from. I know that it was my information because the output is reporting this. And in addition to this, I can also start to control my assets, my context, right? I can set constraints on it. I can wrap my assets in an NFT. So if AI agents want to use my data for some other purpose, they can actually subscribe to my data sets either for training purposes or for new inferences, et cetera. So we start to create this two-sided marketplace where both of us are in control of our assets. We can monetize and capture the value of them, and we can track and trace and get fine-grained attribution and provenance out of these solutions. Great explanation. That was really interesting. A lot going on there. I've not really heard a business idea like that. Not yet on this podcast anyway. What's the scalability potential with this business? Do you, how big do you want to take it? I mean, arguably, the sky's the limit on the capabilities of the back end, never mind core solution, but from a marketplace point of view. It's also it's an interesting proposition in terms of where this goes. Could become vertical oriented. We have a very um, specific focus on the decentralized science or DSI community at the moment. One of the reasons being we helped create, never mind, and Kiko helped create the community through some technology developments. But the space has an affinity towards what we're doing, right? Because it's a mix of scientists, research scientists, and, and Web3 developers. So we kind of cross the bridge. The, on the research side, they, they tend to use machine learning capabilities and now AI to do the work that they need to do. And on the Web3 side, obviously, we've got like crypto uh, backend. So there's the affinity there. So we could just track towards that life sciences, healthcare, medical applications, biopharma, that kind of yeah. thing. But broadly speaking, this is applicable. It's a horizontal solution, so it could scale. I think the biggest thing, the one thing that like I like to drive home here is we have the emergence of these AI agents but they're not gonna have bank accounts, right? They're still, however, gonna need the means to transact. How are they going to transact? We're biased, obviously, but we think it will be through wallets on blockchains. And mm -hmm. what we're bullish on as an organization is that this means of wrapping these AI agents and what represents them to you and I sort of in a usage context is their APIs. Wrapping those APIs in an access NFT and token gating that access based on conditions managed by smart contracts. Basically, what we've given is these agents a point of sales system, right? So we're seeing the manifestation through the work that we're doing actively in the creation of or, or the, the, the development of this ability for these AI agents to actually transact. So now we start talking about, you know, you look to a future where there's autonomous agents they leverage nevermind technology to mint tokens their own tokens perhaps manage reserve etc and transact with other services other agents you know these uh plug-in services like expedia or reddit or whatever which i think is it's quite an interesting proposition 
going forward. And what about your your personal motivators? Like, why do you do what you do? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning to continue doing this? I mean, it's going to sound a bit cliche, but it's like it's trying to answer those questions. Like at the end of the day, I love the puzzle that these data solutions represent or these data ecosystems yeah. represent. Trying to solve that puzzle, I firmly believe that a lot of the issues that exist are relate specifically to a lack of, of provenance and the ability to capture that provenance holistically. And because we lack that provenance, we lack the ability to generate fine-grained attribution, right? And at the end of the day, when you and I, like we've been talking about data as an asset and you know, data being the new oil and data sharing, like that this has been this is a decades long conversation, yet it still doesn't happen at scale, right? Why why is that? For me personally, knowing the insides of these solutions, it's because they lack provenance, and because they lack provenance, you can't create proper attribution. But if we had the means to achieve attrib- you know, uh, proper attribution and conditionally manage the access based on that attribution now we have a real system that will scale and create this quote-unquote data economy and i think we've gotten to a point now where we have the technology in place but more importantly we have the the consumption driver in the past organizations and humans for whatever reason that drive for consumption just didn't exist. But with the emergence of these AIs, you can see it already, right? The LLMs and more specifically the use case applications that use like in-context learning or retrieval augmentation or transfer learning style use cases that are going to leverage these large language models, they're going to need access to data to make the responses relevant. So without going too detailed into things, basically with these models, if they're trained on the same data sets, regardless of the, well, I mean, the architecture can change the responses a bit, but if they're trained on the same data, basically they'll converge to the same response, right? So in order for an AI to differentiate itself from a competitor AI, it has to have access to different information. That sets us up for a commercial driver for consumption the AIs are going to demand access to information that its competitor does not have. And that is what we believe is going to lead to this explosion in the data economy. And again, these AI agents aren't going to have bank accounts. They're going to need the means to transact. How are they going to do that? Mm-hmm. Writing's on the wall. Thank you, Don. So last question. I like to ask this question. So basically, you know, you've got your own businesses and they're thriving and you enjoy this environment. What advice would you give to someone that's perhaps sat on the fence thinking about starting a business, but they just haven't bit the bullet to go for it yet? I mean, I'm not going to tell somebody to do it or not do it. What I can do is relate it to my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be in a position in the future where I regretted not doing it. Whether or not I failed, I just I wanted to be in a position where I could at least look myself in the mirror and say, at least you tried it, even if you failed. Right. So I think the driver for me was initially to get off that fence because I think everybody's on the fence 
at some point in time was just I don't want to regret not trying this. So yeah. my advice would be look at the potential and ask yourself, like, if you don't do it, are you going to be that disappointed or not? If you're not going to be that disappointed, maybe don't do it. But if you think you're going to regret not trying and it uh, quite honestly for me, I mean, I knew where I wanted to sit technologically and, and focus wise, but within that broad perspective, what I did uh, for these companies, it didn't, it didn't really matter so much. It was more just, I want to try it. I want to see if I can do it. I want the challenge to see if I can gen- create something from absolutely nothing. And if I don't try it, I think I'll regret not trying it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right with saying that. As you say, if you, if you feel like you're going to regret it, you might as well go for it. I think I believe the exact same thing. So yeah, I have to agree with you there. We've only got, you know, presumably we've only got one shot at this. So mm-hmm. make a count, do what makes you happy, try and have as few regrets as possible. Absolutely. And experience as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and you've certainly done that. That's why I wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for being a guest on the Startup Stories podcast. I think your story is really compelling. The fact that you've been to like seven or eight different countries where you've lived. I think that's kind of, as you said at the beginning, set you up on your journey within your career because it almost emulates the same pattern, you know, chopping and changing all the time, adapting to new risk, uh, outside factors that you can't control, all these sort of things. And uh, I look forward to following, you know, Nevermind Story from afar, seeing where you go with it over the next year or so. So yeah, uh, thank you so much for, for telling me your story. Jordan, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, the, uh, we're coming out with the, the, the Nevermind app marketplace in about a week's time. So I'll drop you the link when we go live. And yeah, looking forward to seeing where this takes us. Absolutely. Look forward to the launch. What day is it exactly? Is it the- so we're planning on doing like the PR release and et cetera on uh, next Thursday. So like the embargoes and stuff will go out then. And then the official announcements will be the week after. Wicked. Amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you, Don. Thanks, Jordan. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.